Y'all turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, 25 through 34, right in the smack in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. Greatest message ever preached. We're, we're talking, we're in a series right now called uh, Life on Purpose. And we're talking about how to find the reason why, you, why you're alive today. A couple weeks ago, we began with Psalm 139, and we looked at the fact that uh, before you were ever born, God had a plan for you. He knitted you together in your mother's womb. That doesn't mean that God was inside your mother's stomach with a ball of yarn and knitting needles. It's a symbolic way of saying God took great care in crafting you just the right way. Because as that passage goes on to say, He knew every day you would live before you ever lived it. And last week we looked at Ephesians 2.10 and how you are God's work of art, His masterpiece, created and redeemed so that you can accomplish certain good works that God made you to do. God planned these specific good works that I can't do, but you can. That you can't do my work, but I can. And God created you for that purpose. And so to find the purpose God made you in this world to find, it's not necessarily about who you marry or whether you get married or not. It's not necessarily about what your job is because you probably won't get paid to do your purpose. But it is finding the good works God prepared for you to do before you were ever born. And you can go back on the website and and listen to those if you haven't heard them already. But, you know, we all have decisions in this life to make. And the passage we're going to look at today, I hope, is going to give us a framework for making those decisions. I want to start by telling you about a guy named Charles Steinmetz. You've probably never heard of him, but 100 years ago, he was known worldwide as pretty much the preeminent expert in the field of electrical engineering. He was born in Germany, of course. Um, He was a dwarf and a hunchback, so he faced a lot of uh, physical limitations, uh, challenges in life, but it didn't stop him. He had a genius intellect. He immigrated here to America and was really responsible for creating a lot of the things that 100 years ago really changed American society and helped us uh, become the economy that we did over the next 100 years. For instance, you've heard of the Ford assembly line in, in Dearborn, Michigan, that was the first of its kind that made car ownership really possible for middle-class people. He designed the, the uh, generators that ran that assembly line. Now, there's an old story, and it's probably a legend because it's too good to be true, that one day the, the generators quit working and the assembly line ground to a halt. And all the All the engineers on the Ford payroll worked and worked, and they couldn't figure it out, and so finally they called Charles Steinmetz. And here comes the old guy, and he hobbles around, uh, tightening these things and and pushing these buttons and twisting these levers, and all of a sudden it's working again. And a couple of days later, they get a a bill in the mail that says $10,000. Now, $10,000 100 years ago was even more than it is today. It was a whole lot of money, and Henry Ford was the we- one of the wealthiest men in the world, but he was no- nobody's fool. So he wrote a letter back and he said, Dear Charlie, don't you think $10,000 is a lot for a few minutes of tinkering with a few knobs and switches? And he got an itemized bill in return. And the bill said, for tinkering with wires and switches, $10. For knowing where to tinker, $9,900. <laughs> Again, probably not a true story, but it's... It's, it's, there's no replacing the knowledge of the Creator. Someone made something, they're going to know how it's supposed to work and what it's supposed to do. So I want to ask you a series of questions, all right? Since God made us, I want to ask you a series of questions, and you respond by raising your hand or keeping them down. 
Raise your hand if you believe that God knows where to tinker in your life to make things work the way they should. Okay. Um, Raise your hand if you believe that He has a plan for your life that's better than your plan. Okay, we agree on that. Okay, raise your hand if you believe that God wants you to know His plan. A little fewer, but I, I think I agree with that statement. I think biblically speaking, all of those are defendable. We've we've talked about how you have a purpose and God created you for that purpose. One more question. Raise your hand if you wish you could do a better job of hearing his voice and knowing his will. Yeah, me too. Now, I'm not an expert in this subject, but here's what I know. In Scripture, when Moses and the Israelites were trying to make their way to the promised land, they were led through the wilderness, the desert, by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. At night, God appeared as fire in the sky. During the day, he was this pillar of cloud. So it was easy to know where God was leading them. They wake up and you see the clouds over here. It's going this direction. Let's go that way. Later on, Jesus came into the world. John 1 says that he was the word made flesh. Just like that that song Kara led us in earlier. He was God. He was God in human flesh. So those early disciples and all those who followed him, men and women both, If they wanted to know what God was thinking, all they had to do was ask Jesus. If they wanted to know God's will for their life, all they had to do was ask Jesus. And wherever Jesus went, they went. They knew they were doing the will of God. And that sounds to us perfect. That sounds to us like, man, I wish I could have that. And yet, here's what Jesus said the night before he went to the cross, John 16, 7. He said, but I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, someone, someone get all Pentecostal on me or get black church on me and tell me out loud, who is the counselor? Anybody? Holy Spirit. Amen. Good job. Good job. Now, Jesus actually said, it's going to be better for you when I'm gone because then the Holy Spirit will come to you. Now, why is the Holy Spirit better than Jesus? Because Jesus, although he was God in human flesh, was encased in a human form. That meant he can only be in one place at one time. That meant if you were in Chicago, he was in Jerusalem. That meant that if he was talking to Peter, he couldn't be talking to you too. Now the Holy Spirit is here, and he's with us all the time, constantly. There's never a time when the Holy Spirit's not awake and on call and ready to guide you, ready to lead you, ready to teach you, ready to convict you of sin, ready to comfort you and show you the way. We We are living in the best time in human history because we have constant access through the blood of Christ to God through the Holy Spirit. In other words, we can hear His voice. Now, I'll be honest with you. I've struggled with this in my life. When I was growing up, and I grew up in a Christian home, I accepted Christ when I was nine. really started actively following God when I was a teenager. And from that point on, I really, really struggled with this idea of knowing God's will because I'd heard preachers talk about, hey, God told me this, or I heard the Lord say that, and I thought, well, I need that too. If I could get that, that little hotline to heaven, then I could always make the right decision and life would go great. And I'd ask preachers, so how do you hear God's voice? How do you know His will? And they would give me preacher-sounding answers. Don't you love preacher-sounding answers? You know how much good they are? Zero. That, That didn't do me any good. No offense to the preachers I had. They were good men, but it just didn't connect. And and I struggled with that. And then as a young adult, I I found a book. It was a brand new book called Experiencing God, Knowing and Doing the Will of God, written by Henry Blackaby. Have you ever read this, anybody? Anybody familiar with this book? 
So I was a young adult at that time, still struggling with this idea of knowing the will of God. And I thought, this book is for me. I got it. I started reading it. It's actually meant for a group Bible study, but I didn't care. I was just going to read through it. And at first, I found it very disappointing. I mean, later it became one of my favorite books of all time. But at first, I was disappointed because he kept talking and talking about how God loves you and he wants to have a personal relationship with you. And I'm thinking, yeah, Henry, I know. I've been in church my whole life. Tell me something I don't know. What about my big decisions? Where should I go to college? What should I major in? Who should I marry? Where should I, where should I work? What should I do? Where should I live? And it wasn't answering any of those questions for me. And then it hit me as I continued studying, as I continued walking through this, maybe my biggest problem was that I was focused on knowing God's will, but I wasn't focused on knowing God. I was trying to use God's will as a magical tool to get what I wanted out of life, which was happiness and success and plenty of money and everything I needed, everything I wanted. Y'all remember the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark? Anybody ever seen it? Come on, we're in church. You don't have, you don't have to lie. We, we've seen the movie, right? One of my favorites. So in the movie, is Indiana Jones, this archaeologist and you know, bullwhip wielder. I mean, he's, he's, he's a great guy. He made the fedora cool for about five minutes. Um, he, was, he was one of my favorite movie characters ever. In this movie, he's searching for the Ark of the Covenant, which was the gold-covered box that contained the, the Ten Commandments that, that sat in the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle and later the temple, the holiest object on earth. Now, Indy is a skeptic. He doesn't believe in God. He just wants to find this because it needs to be in a museum because that's what you do with uh, valuable ancient relics. But the Nazis are looking for it too. And they are believers. They believe in the power of God and they want to use the power of God. One of the characters in the movie says, hey, an army that carries the ark is invincible. It's a radio for talking to God. We can, we can communicate with Him and, and we can use His power to conquer the world. Now, I don't want to spoil the movie for you. It has been about 40 years, but I don't want to spoil it for you just to say that at the end of the movie, the Nazis find out that God is not a tool that you can use. And if you try, you might get your face melted off. You know, not, not good. And it occurred to me as I'm studying, experiencing God, as I'm, I'm really wrestling with these concepts, it, it occurred to me that the way I was thinking of God's will was a lot similar to the way the Nazis thought of the Ark of the Covenant in that movie. It's a tool I can use to get what I want. Now, obviously, my, my, my goals weren't world domination, but at the same time, I was just as selfish. It occurred to me that instead of trying to know God's will, I just need to know God. That's the real reward. That, that if I would just trust Him, that if I would just follow Him, that he'd teach me in his way, in his time, what his will was. And I, I learned something else too. The people in Scripture who actually did the will of God, who followed his purpose, they didn't have perfect lives. They didn't have problem-free existences. Moses, for instance, he didn't start following God till he was 80. Up, to, up until the age of 80, he did life his own way. It didn't really work out all that well, but at least he was his own boss. And then at age 80, he meets God, and he starts living out God's purpose for him. And did his life immediately get better? No. Well, sure, he had, he had a life of purpose, and he, he knew that his life was making a difference. But at the same time, he's now his life is on the line. He's face-to-face he's -face with the most powerful man on earth saying, let my people go. He could be killed at any moment. That had to be stressful. 
Then when God finally came through and delivered the children of Israel, then his life didn't get any easier because now he's in charge of hundreds of thousands of people who are all whiny and complaining and, and second-guessed his every decision. And I want to go home. And who are you? And why are you leading us this way? And Moses had to deal with that for 40 years. I mean, the parents who dedicated their children here, they only have to deal with that for a few more years, right? <laughs> okay, that was a really cynical thing to say. I love your children. You're doing a great job. But Moses had to deal with stress, the stress of, of caring for all these people. Why? Because, because he said yes to God's plan. So it occurred to me, if I follow God's will, if I live out His purpose, I won't necessarily get all the things that I want. And I had a decision to make. Which do I want? Do I want to try to pursue my dreams with no guarantee I'll ever get them? Or if I do get them, they may not be everything I hoped? Or do I trust God to just tell me the way? And so for the first time in my life, in my early 20s, I said, I'm going to seek to know God above all else. I'm going to, I'm going to read the Bible not looking for answers, just looking to know God. I'm going to go to church not just hoping to check that box off and go, thank God I got through that so I can go on with my week, but actually sitting there saying, okay, Lord, what do you have to say to me about yourself and what I should be doing? And right in the midst of that time, God spoke to me in an unmistakable way and, and, and just showed me a direction that changed my life forever. That's for next week. We'll talk about that next week. What does that have to do with Matthew 6? That's our, our text for today. Let's read the text together. Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, this is the words of Jesus, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is, this not, is, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying at a single hour to your life? Just as a side note, this is, there, there's an alternate uh, reading of the Greek in verse 27. I just find this funny. The alternate reading says, can any of you by worrying at a single inch to your height? Let me just testify, no, it doesn't work. <laughs> verse uh, 28. I didn't think that'd be funny, but... Um, and, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Really good advice. What does it have to do with decision making? Think about the people that Jesus was talking to. These were not what we, could, we would consider wealthy people. They were not even what we would consider middle class people. A lot of us... Uh, we make decisions today. We worry about things like, can I send my kids to college? Am I going to have enough money to do this? Um, can I afford a car that's not going to break down? Can we buy a new house that's in a better neighborhood? Am I going to be able to retire when I hope to? These were people asking questions like, am I going to have to bury another child? Are we going to have another bad harvest so that we're going to have to sell 
I'm going to have to sell myself into slavery, otherwise we're all going to starve to death. Uh, Is there going to be another plague? Is there going to be another famine? What's going to happen? How am I going to clothe my kids? These were people on the knife's edge of poverty. You think you've got problems. These people had real problems. And yet here's Jesus saying, don't worry about that stuff. Food and clothing, your Heavenly Father already knows you need them. The pagans run around worrying about stuff like that. And by saying pagans, he just means anybody who doesn't know the one true God. He said, instead, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and all that will be taken care of. Now, let me tell you what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean Jesus wasn't saying to them, hey, don't worry about going to work. Just stay home. I'll send you manna from heaven, and everything will be great. The Bible's very clear. Proverbs especially, but all through the Scriptures, a good work ethic is the godly way. Spending your money wisely is a smart way to live. That's not what this is about. What Jesus is saying is, don't make earthly things your focus. And as I read this as a, as a 21, 22-year-old guy, I'm saying, you know what? That's my problem. I'm making these earthly decisions my focus. I'm making that the whole reason that I serve God so that I'll make the right choices on that and so I'll be happy and successful. When God was saying to me, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and I'll tell you what to do in my way, in my time. You just have to trust me and seek me first. Don't try to use me. Just know me. How does that work? I'll tell you next week how it, how it helped me, but, but let me just give you a couple of examples. Well, first of all, let's talk about what Jesus meant when he said, seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Because he's saying these are the two things that should be the most important things in your whole life. Your number one goals before your your parents, your spouse, your kids, before your job, before your body, these should come first. What are they? So to seek first God's kingdom means more than anything else, you want Jesus to be king of everything. And Jesus will be king of everything someday when he returns. That's what the scriptures say. And when Jesus is king over everything, what's this world going to be like? There's going to be love instead of hatred. There's going to be healing instead of disease. There's going to be peace instead of violence and joy instead of sorrow. And families that used to be divided will be reconciled. And people who used to be poor will have plenty. And and there's going to be a world that's full of beauty, nothing but beauty as far as the eye can see, because the earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of God as waters cover the sea. And everybody on this earth will know God personally and will experience a loving relationship with Him that brings them joy. And so anytime right now that you and I pray about stuff like that or work towards stuff like that, we're focusing on God's kingdom. We're putting His kingdom first. So anytime you go into a a neighborhood where the the houses are beaten up and, and broken down and the neighborhood is littered and you clean things up, you're putting God's kingdom first. Anytime you mentor a student who's having a hard time passing his test, you're putting God's kingdom first. Anytime, anytime you address poverty or address uh, racial uh, reconciliation or, or anytime you bring two people who are at odds back together and you get them talking again, and most of all, anytime you make an attempt to lead someone to a personal relationship with a God who loves them and can forgive them and change their lives, you're putting God's kingdom first. Anytime you're focused on stuff like that, the things of God's kingdom, you're putting God's kingdom first. So to put it in a sentence, to seek first God's kingdom means to say, what can I do to change this world in God's name? What can I do to change this world in God's name? So that's his kingdom. What about his righteousness? That's something even more personal. 
Something between you and the Lord. His righteousness means the way He wants you to live. It means changing your character to conform to the character of Jesus. When we read the Gospels and we see the way Jesus lived and the way He talked, and we think about ourselves and we think about our motives sometimes and, and the words we say publicly and privately and the things we do, we know we've got a long way to go. I do. So to work for His righteousness, to seek first His righteousness is to say, you know, more important than having six-pack abs or more important than driving a nice car or more important than, than having a good-looking spouse or more important than having perfect kids or, or having a great job, more important than any of that is that I have a character that is growing more and more to be like His. That, that my, my loved ones and my friends will be able to say, hey, I remember when you used to be just a hair-trigger temper and, and, and you would say horrible things at just a moment's notice and now you're very patient. How did that happen? And you being able to say, the Lord did that and now He's working on this area of my life. And that's what it means to seek first God's righteousness. That becomes your top priority. And by the way, that's not something you can do. That's not something you can just wake up and say, hey, today I'm going to become patient. Today I'm going to be humble. Today I'm going to be compassionate. That doesn't work. So you have to, it, it's, sort of like, it's sort of like you don't just wake up and run a marathon. You train for it, right? In the same way, you don't just wake up and become one of those things, one of those pieces of righteousness. You go before the Lord humbly and you say every day, Lord, teach me patience, teach me humility, teach me boldness, teach me compassion, teach me diligence. Any of those qualities that you know you're lacking, that you see in Jesus but you don't see in yourself. And that's the, that is the journey, that is the, the, the fight of a life. And whereas in your physical body you can exercise all you want, there comes a certain point where your body starts to fall apart anyway, the good news is as long as you're alive, your spirit in Christ will continue growing stronger. Though outwardly you're fading away, inwardly you're being renewed day by day. And, and, and to the day you die, you can be becoming a better person through the power of Christ. So to seek first His righteousness means to say, how can I grow to be more like Jesus? How can I grow to be more like Jesus? And the promise of Christ is you seek those two things above all else, then you're not going to lack for anything. You're not going to lack for the things you need and you're not going to lack for the direction you hope for. So how does this apply to decisions? So let me give you two examples and I'm just picking two random examples and these don't refer to any specific people so don't think I'm talking about you. But let's imagine there's two people in a church one day. One of them's a young woman who's worried about marriage. She's seen a lot of bad marriages. She's at that age where a lot of her friends are getting married. She's interested in marriage. She wants to have a family someday. She wants to make the right decision. She also knows this world tells her there's a, somewhere out there there's a soulmate just for her, and if she finds that person, their hearts will mesh and everything will be great, which is baloney, by the way, but sorry, She's, she's wanting to make the right decision. And meanwhile, there's a guy sitting uh, down the aisle from her who's, who's in his middle years. He's married. He's got kids. He's, he's contemplating a career choice. He, he started out in a career field years ago because he knew that it would pay him well and, and, and he'd make enough money to provide for a family and to have a lifestyle that he wanted. But now he's regretting that. He's thinking, you know, there's other things that I love doing. What if, I, what if I could do that and get paid for it? What if I left this job that I don't really enjoy and I took this job that doesn't really pay much, but I enjoy it and that would be hard on my family because they'd have to give up a lot of things, but I think I'd be a better person and they'd appreciate it. What do I do? Now, if these two people came to me and they asked my advice, 
I'd be honest with them. I'd say, I don't know the will of God for you. But I do know this. Whatever you do, He wants you to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And that means two things. That means that you, young single woman, you need to say to yourself and you need to pray in your heart, Lord, I'm going to choose to seek and serve you whether I'm single or married. And if I never find a husband, I'm going to be just as devoted. In fact, I'm going to use my singleness and the freedom that comes with my singleness to serve you with even greater devotion. Because if I had a family, I'd be tied to them. But now I'm going to do everything I can to, to, to push your kingdom and to promote your name and to glorify you. And you, middle-aged man who's contemplating a career change, you need to settle in your mind right now that whatever job God has for you now, you're going to be the best witness for Christ in that job you can be. And if you do that and God chooses not to move you out of that career field, it could be that in serving God through that job, you could find that it fulfills you in ways it didn't used to as you find yourself to be a missionary in that company rather than just a guy dissatisfied with the work that he does. And that doesn't mean, young lady, that you can't go on dates and contemplate marriage because you should, because that's a good thing if it happens. And that doesn't mean, uh, young man, that if, if you get an opportunity to take a different job and you feel good about it and your spouse feels good about it, you shouldn't do it. That's fine. It's just to say, don't let that be your focus anymore. Don't try to use God to give you the right decisions so you can be happy there because that's still not going to make you happy. Only He can. And secondly, when you are making those decisions, use Matthew 6.33 as a grid. And so, young lady, a guy is wanting to get interested in you, is wanting to get involved with you romantically, ask yourself the question, is being involved with him going to help me seek God's kingdom and His righteousness Or is it going to lead me further away from him? Because if I'm headed toward Christ and what he wants for me and this guy's priorities are something else, then either he's going to take me with him or or it's going to break our relationship apart. So that's a non-starter. If you're, you're dating somebody and they don't have the same priority in Christ that you know you should, don't even pray about it. The relationship is over. That's my advice to you. And I think it comes from Scripture. And if you're contemplating a a job change and you look over there and you say, well, this would be a lot of work and and the environment of that job and the demands of that job would mean I really wouldn't be in church as much and I I wouldn't have as much time to give to the kingdom of God, but but hey, I think it's going to be good for my family. I don't think there's a choice to make there because God says, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. Do you see? It doesn't make every decision for you. But you can apply that grid to just about anything, and it can help you know God's will. Next week, we're going to talk about more specifically what the Bible says about how to hear God's voice, how to know the direction He's leading you. But I will tell you this, He's never going to lead you to go against Matthew 6, 33. He's never going to say, you know, in this case, you really don't have to seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. It's okay to be unrighteous now. He's not going to say that. So apply that to decisions about, about retirement, about your, your money, about your relationships, about your home, about your family. And, and what it comes down to, really. When you get down to the root of it, God's will for your life is just like His, God, His will for my life. We have different purposes, but we're all supposed to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. That's one of the great things about being part of a church. Hopefully, hopefully you see me doing that. Hopefully I see you doing that. 
And when we start to stumble, we can correct one another. And we can encourage one another along the way. So let me give you this challenge. I want you to learn to pray about this. And I want you to start today just, just to pray, Lord, teach me to seek Your kingdom and Your righteousness first and to trust You to speak to me in Your way and Your time. And, and you may even want to go further and say, okay, Lord, I know I've got these dreams and these plans and these desires and these hopes, but I just want to say, Lord, if You give them to me, great, I'll praise You for it. But if You don't, I'm still going to serve You because I trust You. And I'd rather do Your plan than my plan. Do you have the kind of faith to pray that prayer? And not just pray it once, but to pray it over and over again. Because if you're anything like me, you know that if you, just, if you just back off for a while, your selfish nature will take over and pretty soon your life is about you again and not about Him. Do you have the faith to pray that kind of prayer? Because like I said last week, I know that there are some of us who would, who would have to testify if we were honest. I love God. I want to do what's right. But I'm afraid that if I just go in all the way, go all in for God, He's going to make me a missionary to Zanzibar or He's going to make me the pastor of a church or something horrible. Um, and, and like I said last week, yeah, we need people to do those kinds of things, but not everybody. We only need one person to be pastor of First Baptist Conroe. <laughs> we need people in every walk of life. And here's something else. Jesus was God in human flesh. And He lived the only perfect life that's ever been lived. He lived the only life that was completely focused on bringing the kingdom of God into being on earth to make His will be done and His kingdom come on this earth as it is in heaven. He was the only person who ever lived a life of perfect righteousness. Never once did He have to say, I messed up. I, I, I need to make a, an apology for this. I need to make up for the mistake I've made. He didn't. He always chose correctly. And in spite of living the only perfect life that's ever been lived, no one has ever suffered the way He suffered. By choice. He suffered in a way you and I can't comprehend. We can maybe comprehend the physical agonies of the cross, although I hope none of us ever experience pain like that. But we can never comprehend the spiritual, emotional, mental down deep in the soul suffering of being rejected by God the Father, of experiencing the literal reality of hell itself for us on that cross. So what I say to you is, anytime you think to yourself, I'm just not sure I can trust God with my life, think about the cross. Because I don't know everything. In fact, there's a lot I don't know, but here's what I do know. You will never regret trusting someone who loves you with that kind of love.